Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad that you're listening today. And there was a really, really interesting sketch on Saturday Night Live. Uh, it was pre-pandemic, but it made such a deep impact on me that I still remember it today. It starred Adam Sandler, and he was playing a fictitious tour operator, probably based on uh, Perillo tours, standing in front of a camera talking about the fact that if you're taking a vacation, you're still you when you travel. If you don't like how you look in a bathing suit at home, you won't like what you look like when you're on the road either. So we're going to start this show with a counterpoint to that attitude about travel. That, you know, it's just kind of yourself hurtling through space to another place. And you won't, if you're a miserable person at home, you're going to be a miserable person on the road. I'm not sure our next guest would agree. Her name is Jen Rose Smith. She recently wrote a really splendid article for the Washington Post. It's It's called, You're a Different Person When You Travel. Here's Why and how to transform yourself at home. Hey, Jen, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Thanks for having me. So did you see that sketch? Do you you know what I'm talking about? No, I haven't, but I can vividly (laughs) imagine. And, you know, I think we've all had that feeling too, sort of thinking, here I am in a different part of the world, and here I am, the same person. But I do think that there's a different side to travel and identity. Yeah. And you start this article by revealing something a little personal, that even though you're married, you travel alone a lot. Why do you do that? Yeah, I have, you know, I've been married for about 15 years and I have been traveling by myself the entire time. I travel with my husband too, but you know, most years I take a month or six weeks and travel by myself because I do feel like there's a side of myself that I can experience when I'm by myself traveling that is really different from who I am at home. And, you know, I really, it feels important to stay connected to that. Right. Absolutely. And you spoke with a really terrific writer named Karen Stein, who wrote a book called Getting Away From It All, Vacations and Identity. Such a, such an interesting title because I have a feeling a lot of people don't really usually uh, connect the two, vacations and your identity. Why does she say that identities can change when you're on the road? Yeah, she was so interesting. So she's a sociologist and, you know, from her perspective, we all have this whole range of selves, like this set of identities that we draw on in different situations. And I actually think this is familiar to a lot of people that the person our work friends know is maybe a little bit different from the person that our family knows. And even if we're being authentic in all of those situations, we just have different selves. And, you know, Stein says that those selves are kind of anchored in places and people and familiar things. And there's a different self that can emerge when we're away from familiar places and away from familiar people. And I would even say that, you know, for some people, travel becomes kind of a fixed place that we have a self we can return to every time we travel. Mm. And, you know, those are all authentic. Those are all honest, but they are different. And sometimes it can be a better self. I thought it was fascinating that there was a study about students who did a semester abroad 
and the big impact that had on their psyches. I know. It's so interesting. So there's these studies saying that people become more creative. They become more empathetic. They become more trusting and open-minded. You know, and it's kind of hard to say how exactly that happens. But some of what people think is that it's about disrupting expectations and disrupting rote behaviors. You know, we move through a lot of familiar things kind of on autopilot, you know, in time-saving mode. And then when we're in an unfamiliar setting, we're forced to figure things out moment by moment and to listen to the people around us and to try and sort of be sensitive to our cultural setting in a way that we don't always have to think about quite so much at home. Right. And you spoke with a, a neuropsychologist named Paul Nussbaum who said that that autopilot is kind of like sitting down all the time. You know, how we need to exercise our bodies by traveling, we exercise our brains, right? Yeah, you know, autopilot is easy and autopilot is efficient. And there's a reason that we do that. And that's totally okay. But I think that exercising those muscles of being a little bit, little bit off kilter, maybe a little bit uncomfortable, is really important for who we are. Right. Absolutely. And it's it's something, unfortunately, that the maybe not the majority of Americans, but uh, 43% of Americans, according to your piece, it's the state they live in because Americans never take all their vacation time, right? Yeah. You know, and there's two sides to this. On one hand, Americans don't take their vacation time. On the other hand, lots of Americans have no paid vacation time. Um, right. And it's just not an opportunity that a lot of people get. And I think from this perspective of Nussbaum and other psychologists who study the experiences of travel, that means they're really missing out on important human experiences to be away from work and away from the working world. Right. But because of the pandemic, we've learned an important lesson. And some people knew it before, that maybe your working life doesn't have to be in one place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that is absolutely true. I mean, I'm, I'm a travel writer. I've spent a lot of time working out of cafes in Budapest, in Cairo. And, you know, your work can be on the road. And I think that people who can take advantage of that can really have the opportunity to experience this identity shift or this cultural shift without totally unplugging from life at home. And there are actually organizations, programs like Remote Year and Wi-Fi Tribe. Uh, that help people uh, make this type of lifestyle shift. Can you tell us about what those organizations do? Yeah, so um, people who are taking a gap year might work with an organization to kind of arrange experiences, whether it's volunteering or maybe doing a sabbatical time working somewhere else. But Wi-Fi Tribe and Remote Year, you know, they really offer the chance for people who want to try out long-term travel, long-term digital nomadism, but have a cohort. You know, it's a little bit of a safety net. You have someone to call on. You have someone to sort of think through your options around what would be a good place to do this? Where can I try this out? Where has exciting things to do and good Wi-Fi? And, you know, I think that up until the pandemic, that was a thing that was really growing. And it seems like already those are really coming back. Um, Digital nomads got kind of disrupted by the pandemic, but I think that a lot of people are considering their options. Disrupted or started for the first time. I have a dear friend from high school who actually read an article I wrote about the fact that Barbados was giving year-long visas, and he thought, why the heck not? And he moved to Barbados. And I don't think he would have pre-pandemic, but he was able to work from uh, anywhere. And so he decided to strike out and try it. He's 
he's probably going to move there permanently. He just loves it. Which is interesting because you also make the point in the article that not all types of travel are as salubrious for the brain as things that really take you out of your comfort zone, right? Not that Carrie is just lying on a beach. I'm not saying that about him. But just going somewhere and lying on a beach may not have the effect of making you more empathetic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that some of this is pretty intuitive to people. You know, when we go to an all-inclusive resort on an island somewhere where every single eventuality is taken care of by a wristband, I don't think anyone thinks that they're really having a particularly immersive cultural experience. You know, I think especially when it comes to that kind of tourism, a lot of the service on offer is reducing friction. But friction and a little bit of discomfort and encountering unfamiliar things, that's at the heart of what can be transformative about travel. So I think planning a trip where you're open to encountering things that you don't know exactly how you're going to navigate it is probably best if what you're wanting is to personally grow through the experience. And you end the article by talking about how people can put this friction into their daily lives. Uh, so, So what are some of the ways that people can have the salubrious effects of travel without getting on a, a, a cruise ship or getting on a plane or getting into their cars. Yeah, I love this. And some of these ideas come from Jamie Kurtz, who's a psychologist who wrote a wonderful book called The Happy Traveler about planning vacations. And she said, you know, you can shake up your routine at home. You can take a different route to work. You can visit a different cafe but also just slow down to really notice what's around you. I mean, I think a lot of us, when we travel, sort of put time and energy into being thoughtful about the things that we encounter that we don't always bring to our home lives. And you can bring that to your home life, whether that's taking photos of things that you encounter that are beautiful, or just chatting with people that you meet on the street in the way that we all love to do when we travel. Yeah, yeah. Well, wise words. Thank you so much, Jen, for appearing on the From a Travel Show. Thanks so much, Pauline. Our next guest has written a delightful dictionary. It's called Blimey, I'm Knackered, an American survival guide to British English. His name is Marshall Hall. Welcome, Marshall, to the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you very much for having me, Pauline. I'm delighted to be here and uh, have a discussion with you. Uh, well, let me uh, let me ask you first. How did you get the idea to write a book about British English? Well, um, I relate the story in the book that I had moved to London uh, supposedly just for a year to teach at the American University here. And of course, there were a lot of Americans also uh, teaching and going to school. And London has a lot more Americans than what you might think. And uh, of course, the expat community kind of gets together and we go out for drinks or dinner and we would have discussions about embarrassing situations that we'd gotten ourselves into because we didn't understand the British nuance of a particular <laughs> word or right. a phrase. And uh, we would laugh riotously 
uh, assisted, of course, with a little bit of alcohol. But and, <laughs> and the idea occurred to me, you know, this would make a great book if somebody would just do it. <laughs> no one did. And so it kind of fell to me. Well, and one of the fun things about the book is not only do you give the definitions of the words, but you often will tell the background of the of the different words. So uh, I wrote down a whole bunch of of different ones, and you have different sections of the book: transportation oh, no, words. Oh no, this is going to be a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you don't mind, like no, I don't mind. No, I see how well I know my own all book. Right. Yeah. Well, all right. So yeah, here comes the quiz. What is so you have a whole section on insults, and I'm only going to ask one because this could get a little too naughty. Yes, um, exactly. What is a cheese eating surrender monkey? Oh, no, no. <laughs> uh, at the risk of insulting all, all of the French <laughs> listeners that we right. have, uh, it was a saying that uh, Bart Simpson came up with in one of the episodes to refer to the French. Those cheese-eating surrender monkeys, uh, of course, with a reference to World War II. Now, that is that is very insulting. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't use it within polite conversation. Right, right. But I, I thought it was just poetic. Some of the, that, that's kind of what's fun about the book is it's not only different words, it's a different mindset, like argy-bargy. Yeah, argy-bargy. Yeah, soft G. Argy bargy. That's a, a bit of bother. Um, you know, a misunderstanding, an argument. Well, there's an argy bargy going on over in the corner. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And let's, what is a lollipop lady? <laughs> That's a crossing guard, we would say in America. The lady that stands in the middle of the street with a high vis vest on and a, a big sign that says stop or go. Right, right. And yeah. then the children can cross the, uh, you know, the zebra crossing, as they call it. Right. Uh, no, I love that. It's it, it's just so uh, uh, visual. You can see her with the red <laughs> well, sign. A lot of the English sayings are very um, uh, uh, practical, uh, visual uh, in, in their creation. Uh, you know, what does it look like? Well, that's probably what they call it. Going towards poetry again. Uh, there's a phrase, and you you have uh, colloquialisms, you have slang. Yes. What is better than a smack in the face with a wet halibut? <laughs> <laughs> um, now that is one of the phrases. I really don't know where it came from. Huh. Um, but it's uh, when when um, something happens. And it's not a particularly nice thing, but you know what? It's better than a smack in the face with a wet halibut. It could be <laughs> a smack in the face with a fish. It could be, uh, you know, a poke in the eye with a blunt stick is another one. Right. Um, and I believe that the origins of that phrase are from Monty Python. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that there was the sense. fish dance. I don't know how well you remember Monty Python, but. There was the fish slap dance. Uh -huh. that, uh, yeah, well, anyway, if you <laughs> once you see it, you never forget it. Right. And I guess the British haven't. And then you, you talk about some other phrases that are less funny than unusual, like doing porridge. Can you explain <laughs> what that means? Well, doing porridge is doing time in prison. 
And the, the phrase, the saying comes about because porridge used to be the standard meal. You could, there were no variations on it. The standard breakfast meal every oh, day, in every day. And so it kind of worked its way into the vernacular of that community that I'm doing porridge. Right. Oddly enough, porridge has been withdrawn from the menu of huh? many of the modern prisons, not for dietary reasons, but because it was being used to plug up the locks in the cells. Wow. Fascinating. Um, and also, you say in the book, it was also being used as a basis for brewing hooch, for yes, creating right. liquor. They, they would keep it. I don't know. I, I don't know the methodology, actually, but they must have kept it, scooped it into their pocket or something and kept it and mixed it with water until it fermented. And so, But it yeah. could not have tasted very good. No, no. Well, speaking of liquor, that word has a different meaning in British English, right? Well, it kind of has has a double meaning, but uh, it is different than the the American interpretation. We would automatically think that that meant a liquor store, but liquor can also mean the liquid that comes off of any cooking process. And where we find that most frequently used in public is liquor that comes with your, your eel, jellied eels or with, uh, it could be very uh, watery, runny mashed peas uh, that comes with your, your fish and chips. Sure. Uh, so uh, they, if you order fish and chips, uh, especially if you order mushy peas, they may ask if you want liquor with it. Yeah. Well, they're not asking about alcohol. Right. And you said usually when they refer to alcohol, they say spirits rather than like spirits. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's uh, not, not beer. Right. It has to be spirits as distilled alcohol. Yes. All okay. right. So we, we're talking food, a dog's dinner. What is that? <laughs> well, a, a dog's dinner isn't necessarily referring to uh, food or the cooking process. It refers to something that's gone horribly wrong. Uh, a method that you were going to do something, perhaps something around the house, fix something, and it went terribly wrong and it ended up worse than when you started. And it dinner. may very well be that someone says, boy, you made a dog's dinner out of that, didn't you? So it's an expression of something that's gone really wrong. That's so funny. Well, I guess it's leftovers. You know, it's funny. My father once was in, I think it was Italy in the 1960s, and yeah. he asked for a doggy bag because he was so enjoying his meal, he wanted to <laughs> enjoy it later. And they went into the kitchen and gave him all the scraps in a bag. <laughs> They didn't give him his leftover food. And you know what was amazing was that they wouldn't do that. They, yeah, <laughs> it was very they, kind of them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, I don't know what he wants it for, but let's get <laughs> yes, um, Yeah, and you know that uh, when I first moved here uh, in 88, um, doggy bags were not something that was done. You, if you asked for something to take away home, they wouldn't quite understand what you were asking. Now it's it's become fairly commonplace. If you've got leftovers, they'll understand that you're wanting to take that home with you. Well, that's good. Yeah. All right. Just a couple more. Puka. P oh, I'm enjoying -K -K. myself. You're, you're fa passing this quiz with flying colors. Of course, you wrote the book. But 
Puka, P-U-K-K-A. What does Pukka. that mean? Pukka. Okay. Pukka. Well, it um, it's an East End kind of um, in New York. You would say it was a Bowery Boys kind of saying, an East End saying here that something was pukka. It's um, it's good. It's uh, it's the right thing for the right moment at the right time. It is generally applied to food. Now. I'm unfamiliar with how well you would know Jamie Oliver. Sure, I know Jamie Oliver, yeah. Jamie Oliver popularized the word pukka over here, especially in his early days doing his cooking shows. He would say that's... Well, he's always screaming at people. So I would think people in the American uh, audience think he's using not a pukka, but something that starts with F. Oh, no, are you sure you're not thinking of Gordon Ramsay? Gordon Ramsay's the one who's oh, yelling. You're right. At him. You're right. I'm thinking of Gordon Ramsay. Jamie yes, Oliver's Jamie's the very younger smart. man. Um, yes, yes, very usually lovely very guy. respectful. Very, he's a nice guy. He's yes. a family guy, you know. Yeah. And he yeah, would yeah, uh, yeah. popularize that <laughs> phrase by saying, "This is pucka food," where this is a pucka sandwich. So it's a proper. Yeah. Uh, the, the literal interpretation interpretation would be, "This is a proper sandwich." Uh, so right. pukka, okay. it, it, it adds an element of goodness to it. And when you say knock up, you're not talking about getting someone pregnant. <laughs> that was fascinating. Well, uh, I actually experienced that, but they explained it rather quick because they knew that Americans would have a different uh, definition of it. To, to knock someone up is to go and knock on their door in, in the morning. Um, we were staying in, a group of us from the university were staying in a hotel, and one of the English uh, professors said, uh, shall I knock you up in the morning? And uh, we all rather went, were uh, slightly aghast. <laughs> and then right, right. noticing the look on our faces, he explained, no, that's to wake you up by knocking on the door in the morning. That's funny. <laughs> One thing that I've encountered, we use a lot of British writers for the Frommer Guides because, yeah. uh, well, the UK used to be part of the EU. And so I would find the best English language writers in France and Italy and Spain were usually Brits because they could live there legally. And they would often tell me, or they would often write, this was a very homely hotel. Which yeah. I would always circle and say, oh, no, we don't want a place that's ugly looking because in American English, homely means unattractive. But it has a very different meaning to the Brits, right? It's not exactly opposite, but right. almost. Um, almost. In a home, uh, we, if you left the L out of it, we might understand it. homey. Yeah. Um, it, it has a home-like feel to it. Right. So something is homely, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, apply to buildings or, or homes. You can have a, a, a homely sweater, uh, meaning down to earth and comfy. And it's, it's really, kind of cozy. Yeah. Cozy, comfy. Yes, very exactly. Home-like. That's a homely hotel room. I don't know what you're going to do now if, if all of the Brits move out of Europe. So, <laughs> Ooh, well, I, I have my my France writer actually married someone to stay there. So, oh, yeah, oh, it's an issue. It's an issue. So, what is your favorite British phrase? Do you have a favorite? I do, but it's because it was my mother's favorite. Ah. I've been here 33, I think 33 years now, and she came to visit a couple of times. And on her first visit, she heard someone say about another woman that she's 
mutton dressed up as lamb. <laughs> and and she it took her a few minutes to kind of work out exactly what they were saying. Mutton dressed up as lamb is someone who is trying to dress a bit younger than really they should. An older huh. woman with too short of a skirt and too, you know, anyway. And uh, so she, my mother, took that back to America and then uh, told lots of stories at dinner parties about mutton dressed up as lamb. <laughs> so that uh, it's a personal reason, but that I think is one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, uh, it's a delightful book. Once again, it's called Blimey, I'm Knackered, which means knackered means, well, before we go, what does knackered mean? Well, it, it uh, has a, a couple of meanings. Knackered usually means I'm tired. I'm mm-hmm. worn out. And uh, to extend that thought, that means that your car could be knackered or maybe the tires on your car are knackered. They're worn out. They're gone. Mm. Uh, So uh, something's broken in the house. Someone might say, oh, that toaster is knackered. In other words, it's done. It's worn out. Throw it away and get a new one. Do you know where the word comes from? uh, Yes, it's knacker's yard. A knacker's yard was the place... Uh, and I don't want to end on an unpleasant note where they would take oh. horses that were worn out, no longer useful, oh. and es- essentially turn them into dog food. So right, the knacker's right. yard was the end. And uh. that usually kind of applies to cars and automobiles and utensils. But it can also oh. mean I'm just dog tired. I'm really tired. Right. Well, this is the end of the interview. So that, that seems an appropriate <laughs> way. I'm I'm Knackered, an American survival guide to British English. Thank you so much, Marshall. It's been a delight speaking with you. Pauline, I have really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite topics. Thank you for having me. Come to the end of another show. My apologies if the acoustics sound a little different. I'm actually taping this from a very groovy hotel room in Chicago. So groovy that when we checked in, we got poker chips for a free cocktail, which I haven't had yet. I'm not. I'm not doing this podcast drunk, but uh, the room is so damn groovy. There's wood everywhere and a shower in the middle of the bedroom. So no shyness here. It's been an interesting day being on the road. My husband and I kind of did an unintentional race at the airport because one of us has pre-check and the other does not. I will let you guess which of us does. And so we went through security separately. And believe it or not, there was only a nine-minute difference uh, between the amount of time it took each of us. And the lines were long. So pre-check was pretty long too. It's going to be interesting to see if if so many people sign up for it that it becomes less of a useful option in the near future. We'll see. But uh, the other fascinating thing was, boy, were the airports crowded. It really felt like pre-COVID times, except for the fact that everybody was wearing masks. And I got to see the new LaGuardia. I've been in the outside of it, uh, taping segments for Inside Edition, but never the inside of the terminal. And it's really beautiful. Uh, it's almost Las Vegasy 
in the design. They have in one of the food courts, there's a massive falling fountain, which they project scenes of New York onto while they play, start spreading the news. It's it's kind of hokey, but it's, you know, the kids will love it. And it's much better than the old LaGuardia. Gotta say, uh, they're in the right direction. So anyway, as always, I'm grateful that you listened. And as always, if you're on the road or if you're about to be on the road, may I wish you a hearty Bon voyage. See you next week. Mm-hmm.